Welcome to Medicare Advantage for Health Plans podcast. Insider insights and perspectives on current trends for health plan professionals. This program is sponsored by UST HealthProof and AdvantageSure. Services and technology solutions for government-sponsored health plans. Today we're talking with Elizabeth Burson about the science of predicting member conditions. Elizabeth works in risk adjustment, analytics technology, and has over 20 years of IT data management experience, managing product portfolios and backlogs. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you. I am looking forward to the conversation. Elizabeth, let's start by talking about what intrigues you most about this work in risk adjustment. Well, I have to say it's the process of identifying member conditions and how that affects member outcomes efficiencies, and programs that ultimately improve member risk scores and health plans risk adjustment revenue. It is such a complicated topic with so many data inputs. Tell us about what variables go into identifying member condition gaps. Well, there are historical member conditions, conditions we know the member has. The evidence has been submitted to CMS and accepted on a response file from CMS the health plan will get reimbursed for the cost of this care, and the member and the member's provider will receive follow-ups on the condition. But what we don't get reimbursed or follow-up on are some conditions that weren't coded or documented properly. For whatever reason, didn't make it from the chart into a claim. But we see that there are indications that a member condition exists. This is called suspected member conditions. So what's the process for identifying and documenting the suspected member conditions? So ideally, a member does have identified conditions, whether it's historical or suspected. You want to address this in a prospective or current year program. This means the gap is open this year. Let's say this is 2023. We have to get it documented and submitted in 2023 with a 2023 date of service. To do that, we include the members and their conditions in prospective programs by presenting the information to providers. For example, John is going to be in your office next Tuesday. Can you please make sure you address the diabetes, which we know John has? But in addition, we see some evidence that suggests John may also have COPD. We need the provider to confirm this so we can capture the member conditions accurately and comprehensively. This improves the member's outcomes and the plan's risk adjustment revenue, which ultimately reduces cost to the member. How do you get the provider's full participation in this process as a partner with the health plan? The first thing is curating the data and the AI programming so that it's detecting good indicators of suspected conditions. The providers need to trust and have confidence in the evidence presented from the plan level. The data has to indicate a real need. We can't say we think Jane has diabetes. That's not sufficient. We have to say why we think Jane has diabetes and provide supporting data. The next part is the delivery of this information via CDI alerts. It has to be in a format that suits the provider and the way their practice is set up. So I think the plans that offer multiple options for providers are going to have higher levels of success with provider engagement. 
Some providers are going to prefer traditional CDI alerts that are printed PDFs and delivered via field representatives, while other providers will prefer to have electronic CDI alerts that piggyback onto their EMR workflows. In any event, meeting the provider where they are in their practice is going to improve their willingness to participate and partner with the plan. What are some examples of evidence for suspected conditions? Our suspecting program logic scans for dates of service that come from pharmacy claims, medical claims, and lab results. It identifies results and treatment protocols that indicates the likelihood the member has a condition. Maybe it's a recent A1C lab value, or maybe we had a claim with an ICD code that maps to diabetes with a recent date of service. Of course, not all evidence is allowed on alerts. You can't use an ICD code from a comorbidity and ask the provider to evaluate the member for diabetes. But you could use a GPI, which is the code used to identify specific prescriptions, and the date it was filled as evidence for a suspected condition. We can use other forms of evidence for suspected conditions, but they're not always allowed on CDI alerts. For example, a member joins a plan and fills out a health risk assessment. They might be asked to identify their conditions. We can't use this information as clinical data for suspected conditions, but we can use it to target a member for an outreach initiative like enrollment in an IHA program. We can also use it to request a retrospective chart review. Even though retro is more expensive, but the value is that once you confirm the condition and code it from the chart, that suspected condition now becomes a historic condition. And historic conditions are always allowed on prospective programs. So this validates the additional expense of the retroactive review because moving forward, you'll have it in a prospective program. But what makes retroactive review so much more expensive than prospective? The prospective format is very specific language for presenting the member condition and the providers have to follow a specific format for their response. This is based on CMS guidelines on what can and cannot be submitted. Retrospective is administratively heavy. We can't ask the provider to document in any specific way because it's already happened. What's in the chart is what's in the chart. We don't have any control after the fact. I don't know how Dr. Smith coded the chart for John when he saw him in the office last September. I can't go back and change how he did that. Once we retrieve the chart, the medical coder who's been trained to interpret these things can say, it looks like X, Y, or Z, but there's nothing here that I'm allowed to capture. But in prospective programs like CDI alerts, we can control the language and the structure of the response, so it forces the providers to document in a way that meets requirements for submission. Let me ask a question. If you have a lab and a prescription to match the lab, then why wouldn't you have a diagnosis? Uh, Logically, that makes sense, but not all providers understand the value of coding all ICDs on a claim. Other providers submit the claim in a way that CMS won't accept. I was at a RISE National Conference this year, and one of the speakers used a great metaphor to explain the situation. It's called the leaky hose. Think about uh, risk adjustment and your initiatives to identify member conditions down at the nozzle of the hose. But if your data is falling out along the way because the hose is leaking, then how effective can your programs be? 
An example of this leak is providers, if you have a provider that only sends one ICD code on a claim. This can be rectified with provider outreach or provider education, or maybe the provider doesn't realize that their claims processing or billing service is dropping other ICDs. This fallout of data along the way makes it more difficult for risk adjustment. Can we expect any upcoming changes from CMS in regards to risk adjustment? CMS has come out with their advance notice, and there's going to be a lot more focus on obtaining available clinical data that supports a suspected member condition. Let's use depression as an example. According to the notice, depression is no longer a risk-adjustable condition. And the reason is that they're seeing an uptick in members going to their primary care physician, receiving a diagnosis of depression and a prescription. But there's no evidence of treatment, like going to a mental health professional to get better. It would be like saying, I suspect this member has cancer, but if there's no claim or treatment from an oncologist as supporting evidence, then this can't be flagged. So that's going to be a big focus, getting supporting evidence. Another big issue is closing as many prospective gaps as possible without overdoing it. You know, you don't want to leave anything on the floor, but it has to be reasonable. A bird in the hand is better than two in the bush, so to speak. We know the member has these conditions, and we have some suspected conditions that have really strong evidence that allow us to include them in prospective programs, so we're going to focus on those. It used to be, let's go full bore after all the gaps prospectively and then follow up the year after, but that's expensive. So the initial strategy was to get as many prospective gaps as you could in a year, And then what you couldn't get that year, you went after, in retrospective, the next year. What would be a better strategy than that? I think Advanisher was already on this, but this may be a a newer concept for others in risk adjustment. For some time now, we've been working with a data science team building member condition models using machine learning. And this isn't a one and done. The models need continual development, and they're constantly evolving. For example, the models pick up trends like changes in treatment protocols. The program is churning through claims, lab results, pharmacy claims, etc. So it's picking up those changes. Along with this, we've also identified that while we want to use the machine learning gaps and maybe the evidence does indicate a high probability of association with a particular member condition, the CDI Alerts program is very structured with its language in terms of filters and what can be presented to a provider. So bringing these two things together, we've built business rules and a file spec that says, give me machine learning conditions, but I don't want just any evidence for that machine learning condition. I want these best available, which is lab, pharmacy, or DME, something that will comply with a prospective program. You mentioned that machine learning models are ciphering through and selecting the most compelling evidence. Can you dive deeper into this? How does that work? Yes. Well, we have filters that can hone in and make sure evidence includes specific values with probability scores. Again, we want to ensure the providers can trust our evidence on CDI alerts. We're not going to send out something with a 0.01 probability score. We want to make targeted decisions. We don't just want all the conditions with lab evidence. We want the conditions with lab evidence that is accompanied by a probability score of 0.45, for example, and higher. 
this ensures that the gaps we're suggesting have validity and we are not over-suspecting and diluting the results. This is going to increase the provider's trust and therefore their participation in Abanisher programs. Going back, you were talking about the machine learning filters. Yeah, the other thing that we do really well is not just generating the machine learning results and probability scores. We're able to return results in a way that allows them to be included in prospective programs. We have a file layout of values that we need returned within the machine learning results, and we have some business rules applied to those values. So if we have a machine learning model that's running for diabetes, we'd want the output to give us lab, drug, or DME that has the highest probability within the model. As an example, if the member has a diabetic shoe, the probability of the member having diabetes associated with the diabetic shoe might be 0.35, whereas the lab result may be borderline. Let's say it's uh, 6.8, and that probability might be 0.2. Out of those two, give me the DME. If none of those are available, neither lab or pharmacy or DME, then you could give me the loosely based hypertension ICD. Even CMS says if a member has hypertension, chances are they have diabetes. But presenting that hypertension comorbidity has caused too many problems in the past. So this is only if the preferred evidence is unavailable. We don't want to miss the gap altogether, so at least send the gap and we can make the decisions later. That makes sense. While machine learning models are the norm now, it's still really incredible to watch them cipher through this information with things like probability scores and the selection of the most compelling evidence. Elizabeth, it has been great having you on the podcast today. Thank you for all the expertise that you bring to this industry. Thank you. I enjoyed talking to you today as well. If you're enjoying the industry education, share with your colleagues on LinkedIn, sign up to receive notifications when new episodes drop, by following on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other major podcast apps. This program was brought to you by UST HealthProof and AdvantageSure. From end-to-end core administrative processing, risk adjustment and quality, to clinical operations, care management, and member acquisition. We offer a full suite of services and technology solutions for government-sponsored health plans.